We continue the series this morning through the last words of Jesus, the seven sayings on the cross. We are now at the third of those, and we are in John chapter 19. And our reading there is very short this morning, just a couple of verses, John 19, 25 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What makes a family? Have you ever thought about that? What makes a family? How would you define family? The Google uh, Dictionary gives us this definition of a family, a group of one or more parents and their children living together as a unit. Do you agree with that definition? Is that what makes a family? In my house, when I grew up, my grandfather lived with me the entire, my entire childhood. Were we not a, a family because we had a different generation in our home? What makes a family? Often the definitions of what makes a family are culturally different, right? Different cultures have different definitions of it. And even within the same cultures, the definition of what a family is often changes over time. I'm guessing most of you are familiar with the hit TV uh, sitcom, Modern Family. That show ran for uh, 11 seasons, 2009 to 2020. And in that show, there were three different families, three different uh, types of families. One was the kind of traditional nuclear family, parents and children in one house, married, right? The other family in that involved an older, wealthy businessman who married a younger woman, a second marriage, and a, with a child from a previous marriage. And the third family in that show was a same-sex couple, a gay couple with an adopted daughter from Vietnam. And much of the conceit, the premise of that show was to kind of demonstrate the changing nature, the evolving nature of family in America that involves a whole bunch of different types of families. It was trying to speak about the changing nature of what makes a family. But of course, now, if you look back on that show, you could even think that if it was made today, that show would seem kind of traditional and quaint in itself, right? The family has evolved again. Everyone on that show was married. I mean, a lot of people today are wondering, why get married? Marriage is uh, you know, part of the, the patriarchy. It is something that enslaves people. The views on adoption have changed significantly. Mitchell and Cameron might well be looked as, at white, as white colonizers now. There's nothing about polyamory in that show, nothing about gender identity in that show. It seems almost out of date. And Jay, of course, with his trophy wife, that would seem problematic on a whole bunch of levels in today's world. That show would be made entirely differently, and it's just like a decade later from when it started. What makes a family, what defines a family, often changes. So what makes a family? 
In Christianity, Christians have often been pretty obsessed with the idea of family, particularly in the wake of the sexual and feminist revolutions of the 1960s. There became this kind of focused emphasis on preserving the traditional nuclear family against perceived assault from someone or something that was trying to destroy it. So Christians came together and things were developed like focus on the family and family research council and politicians spoke about family values. Christians became very concerned with the family, but one wonders, is there really a Christian definition of a family? Does the Bible give us such a definition? Does the Bible present us with an ideal family? And if you think about it a little bit, does it really? Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael, Hagar, Isaac, not exactly Ward and June Cleaver, right? That's not exactly James Dobson kind of stuff. Anyone want to take parental lessons from Lot or Japheth or David? How about marriage counseling from Solomon? In his book, Flawed Families of the Bible, David Garland states the rather obvious fact when he writes this, many of the Bible's family stories do not always seem edifying and often do not seem suitable for emulating. Indeed. Just think about it for a moment. Can you think of one traditional nuclear family in the Bible that is even given to us that would be used as an example for us of how to live? Is there such a thing as a Christian or biblical family that we are to emulate. What makes a family? How do you define it? Is it degrees of consanguinity? Is it biology? Is it living together under one roof? What makes a family? Now, of course, we think about Jesus. Jesus had a family. He was in a family, almost right, a nuclear family. He had a father and a mother. He had siblings, we know that, right? They seem to all have lived under one roof together. Jesus had a family. But the curious thing about Jesus is he often said things about family that seemed almost negative or derogatory of what we would call you know, natural family relations, right? The things that build a traditional family structure. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake. And for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children in fields with, perse with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What kind of family values are those? It's almost like Jesus is telling us, you know, get rid of your nuclear family, right? There was an occasion where Jesus was inside of a house and his family was on the outside. His nuclear family was outside and they were coming to him because they thought he was mad, right? They were coming to extract him, to intervene in the situation. And Jesus is made aware that his nuclear family is outside. And Jesus kind of says, that's not my family. He says, my family are those who do my will, those who are my family. You, you see Jesus kind of putting his family at arm's length, his traditional nuclear family at arm's length. You see it in the beginning of John's gospel, very early on in the first act of public ministry. What does Jesus do? He goes to a wedding. What happens at that wedding? They run out of wine. 
And his mother comes to him, right? And she asks him to make wine, to fix the problem. They have no wine, she says to him. And what does he say back to her? Jesus said to her, woman, not mom, not mother, not mom, not oman, woman. What concern is that? What, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. It's not exactly a warm and fuzzy way to refer to your mother. That's how Jesus kind of speaks to her with this uh, formality, this distancing, this arm's length type of language. Jesus was part of a family, a nuclear family, but he tended to keep that family at arm's length, maybe even suggesting there was something more important than family values, at least of that nuclear sort. You get this interesting picture of Jesus and family and almost seeming to put it off, to put it away in ways that might make us a little uncomfortable or might confuse us or perplex us or befuddle us. But then we come to our text this morning. We come to this third saying of Jesus on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of this terrible ordeal, in the midst of bearing the sins of the world, In the midst of making atonement for sins, Jesus sees his mother there at the cross. Joseph is likely dead at this point. It's just his mother there. And there she is again. In John's Gospel, and I think purposely, his mother appears at the beginning of his public ministry, the wedding at Cana, and here at the end of his public ministry on the cross, and there's intertextuality. John is bringing the text together. If you read them carefully, you'll see in both of them we have the address woman, and we have the word hour. At Cana, his hour had not come, but here his hour had come, and at that very hour... She, his mother, was taken into the house of John. Here we see Jesus caring deeply for his mother, providing for her welfare. The text reads, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Despite all those things where Jesus seemed to put off his family, keep them at arm's length, here he provides for his family. He seems to focus on the family. He seems to care for his mother, provide for her welfare. And most of the time when this text is preached, when these words of Jesus on the cross are preached, that is the primary and often the only focus of those words. That Jesus was here fulfilling the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. D.A. Carson summarizes the kind of typical exegesis. It is wonderful to remember that even as he hung dying on a Roman cross, suffering as the Lamb of God, he took thought of and made provision for his mother. And by the way, I agree with that. I think it is true. I think it is accurate. Jesus was doing that. Kyle is right to point that out in the message this morning. Jesus honored his mother. He loved his mother. I always find this particular account of Jesus very moving, very human, very personal. This past week was the one-year anniversary of my mother's passing. She passed away last week, February 8th. 
last, yeah, last year. And it's passages like this, you know, I think about them. I thought about them during my life. They were moving to me, inspiring. My mom was a widow for 27 years, and I tried my best to honor, provide, and care for her in the absence of my father. My sisters, of course, did certainly much more. I had my role in that. And this scene and Jesus' words, they're meaningful to me, and they should be meaningful to all of us in honoring our mothers and our fathers. I think there's something more here. I think we could peel the onion layer back and see something a little uh, more in this text, something additional to it. And I would like you to think about two other things that I think John is showing us here on the cross, here through these words. Two things John is showing us in these last words of Jesus. First, I think that John wants us to see here Jesus in royal terms. To see Jesus not just as a son honoring his mother, but as king, as one in control of the situation. One who is ruling and reigning and decreeing even while he is making atonement. Even while he is on the cross, Jesus is in charge. There's something fiat-like in, in these words of Jesus, like a royal decree, like a king. This is how a king would speak. Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. There's no negotiation here. This is a command from the cross. It is like an echo of the divine fiat of creation. Let there be, and there was. And here Jesus was saying, Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Let there be. And then we have the fulfillment, right? And from that hour, from that moment when Jesus spoke the command, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home, let there be, and there was. Jesus was the king on the cross. And these words are part of his royal decree. Maybe, perhaps, John even putting Jesus here in contrast to the Roman emperor. There's something imperial about what Jesus does here. During my uh, study leave, one of the books I was reading was uh, Marcus Aurelius, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. He was a Roman emperor uh, from 161 to 180 AD. Uh, and unlike the royalty of Britain, emperors did not always succeed one another based on degrees of consanguinity. They weren't always the biological descendants of one another. There was this thing known as imperial adoption. And often an emperor would adopt a child into his family for the sole purpose of being emperor. And often that's how the dynastic continuity of the emperor continued, how his kingdom continued. And that was the case with Marcus Aurelius. He was adopted by the emperor Antonius. That's how, and it would have been very well known in the age. This is how emperors continue their dynasty through this process of adoption. And I think something like that is going on here. As commentators have looked at this, there's something legal and regal going on in the text. 
Some attribute it to Jewish family law, that Jesus is doing something legal there. Some look at his words as that being akin to a last will and testament, you know, where you appoint guardians, that type of thing. One commentator, she says, Jesus did not die intestate. He had a last will and he made it on the cross. Others have looked to that idea of imperial adoption, that Jesus was creating his own dynastic rule. His kingdom will not end. Because here he is on the cross, high and lifted up, with the power of an emperor and a king, and the power of one who can speak, and it is fulfilled, and he there provides for the continuity of his house, of his kingdom. I think there's something going on there. Something kingly and regal, the idea, and John does this so much, Jesus is in control on the cross. He is king, king of the world. I think we're meant to see that. The second thing I think we are meant to see here is that Jesus wants us to see that he was creating a new type of family. John, particularly, is writing to us to show us, to get us to think about that Jesus was on the cross through those words, creating a new type of family. He was defining what family is. A new type of family. A type of family not created by blood or by biology or by degrees of consanguinity, but rather a family that is based on one's relationship to Him. That's the key unifying factor. That's what unites and brings this family together. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus had half-brothers, right? He had siblings. He doesn't give his mother to his half-brothers who basically rejected him, didn't believe in him. Instead, he gives them to the beloved disciple, to John. He gives his mother to him. Why? Because this is a spiritual family, a new kind of family. Social scientists and anthropologists, they would refer to this as a fictive family. Family, a voluntary association type of family, voluntary kin, if you will, non biological family. It's something that we call, beloved, the church. The church. And although this can be taken too far, I think John does want us to see that Jesus is doing something here, both physical and spiritual, both real and symbolic, as He does so often in His Gospel. We're supposed to see things on two levels. On one level, Jesus is providing for His real physical needs of His real physical mother. But on another level, He's creating something entirely new, a new family, one based on relationships of faith. He's building a new church, right? He's building this thing called the church. And this is the microcosm of it. This is a foretaste of what we will witness in the Acts and the Epistles. When a group of people come together, and what do they do? They're not related by blood or consanguinity, right? They're not that type of relationship, but they come together. They meet in houses. And they eat, and they drink, and they have fellowship, and they have prayer, and they hear the teachings of the apostle. A new family is developing. It is the Christian family. It is the church. Charlene Rutledge puts it this way. She says, what is actually happening in this word from the cross is much more significant for us this very day than we might have realized. The saying is not about being nice to your mother. It is about the new commitment, new community that comes into being through the power of Jesus. 
Jesus has created a new type of family, the church, through these words. And if you think about it, it's consistent with the whole New Testament teaches us. God is our Father, all of us. All those who believe in Jesus Christ call God Father. We are to call one another brothers and sisters. Paul called Timothy his child in the faith. He called Rufus his mother a mother to me, that she was his spiritual mother, that that relationship mattered, that there was a new type of family. And on the cross, in these last words, when Jesus said, woman, here is your son, and to John, here is your mother, he was creating a new Christian family, the one we call the church. And beloved, this is where you enter this text. This is where you come in. This is where it hits you. This is where this ancient verse intersects with modern life, with what you are doing right now. This is a word for you because this text is about you. It's about your family. So what might that mean for you? Well, this past week, I was, uh, came across an article on the Desiring God uh, website. This is John Piper's uh, website. And the article was entitled, True Kinship in God's Family. True Kinship in God's Family. It was written by Pastor Nick Roan. And he describes himself as a Christian struggling with same-sex attraction. And he has committed himself uh, to live a life of celibacy. Now that's a hard walk, a hard walk for anyone. And he talks in that article about one of the particularly challenging parts of that is the, the pain and the sense of maybe I won't have a, a family like other people do. He says in the article, I may never have a lifelong companion, a child, a grandchild. In short, I may never have a family of my own. Then he came across a text in his preaching. He came across one of those anti-family texts that I read to you earlier. The one where Jesus said, you know, about mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, and that you will receive a hundredfold now in this age. If you follow me, you'll get a hundredfold. You give up those other things, you'll get a hundredfold. And he started to think about that idea of the hundredfold. And he started to think about it in context of the local congregation of which he was part as a pastor. And he began to see how much he was integrated into the lives of other people in that congregation. That this became his family, that he was invited into family life. On camping trips, he went to award ceremonies. He was there for special events. He was invited and included and made part of a family, a fictive family, one with voluntary kin. But that he really did have a family, and it was the church. And that's not just true for same-sex People, that is true for everyone, every one of you, whether you're married, separated, divorced, whether you have children or don't have children, no matter who you are, that you're single, whatever God has called you to, whatever situation you find yourself in, the church is meant to be a family, the family of God. So I want you to think this morning, how can I be a better family member? How can you be a better member of this family? What can you do to support your family? 
In the article, Cohen suggests a couple of things. He says, for starters, married couples and families might consider investing in a single person or two, inviting them regularly into their homes and family life, blessing them with familiar love. And single folks might ponder reaching out to a family or married couple, thinking of ways to build a deep relationship through sacrificial service. In these ways, and many more yet unnamed, we reflect our unity as spiritual kin and glorify the one who binds us together. We are the church, he writes. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus' blood. We are true family. That's who you are. That's who Christ made you to be through His work of atonement. He was making and building a family. And I want to challenge you to take those family values more seriously. The church is not a McDonald's. It's not a drive-up window that you go to as a dispensary of spiritual food. It's more akin to a family dinner on Sunday where you gather together with your family and you eat and you drink. Your presence matters. Embodiment matters because other people need you. The church isn't for you, it's for family. We need to get serious about family values again in the church, not in the ways perhaps we have traditionally, but in the ways that Jesus is trying to teach us in this text. So I want to challenge you. What can you do to support your family? And finally, I want to encourage you this morning. Because one of the reasons I wanted to be pastor of this church was because of the family nature of this congregation. Because of how you do love and care for one another. We are not perfect. <laughs> right? <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> We're not even all likable. <laughs> We're a family. We are a dysfunctional family at times, right? We've got our oddball uncles and aunts among us, but we are a family nonetheless. And I see that so often in the way you care for one another. There are people in this congregation who truly have lived out what Jesus said. Families that are not related by blood, but who have become families. Right? I see it when one of us is suffering and people bring meals or care for them and are, are like, you know, just peppering me with how can I help these people? Because they're my brothers and sisters and they're hurting. And how you give and how our deacons give and how we care for one another in the household of God. It is here and it is encouraging and I want to encourage you to keep it up. Focus on the family. So what makes a family? Well, these, these words of Jesus tell us Jesus makes a family. He makes a family of us, of all those who are related to him through faith. We are the church, as Cohen writes. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus' blood. We are a true family. That's the definition of family that has endured, by the way, for 2,000 years. And I invite you, I welcome you, to be here for Sunday dinner and to be part of the family of God. Because like our choir, this family takes all comers. Because all that matters is our spiritual relationship to Jesus. That's what makes us family. That's what family means according to the Bible.
Let's pray.